Tech Sounds presents The Conscious Capitalists. Hello and welcome to The Conscious Capitalists, hosted by two of the co-founders of the Conscious Capitalism Movement and co-authors of the Conscious Capitalism Field Guide from Harvard Business Press, Raj Sisodia and Timothy Henry. Each week, this podcast covers current events and business news and Raj and Timothy's latest thinking on what it takes to build a conscious business. For more information and notes from the show, go to www.theconsciouscapitalists.com. And now, Raj and Timothy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of The Conscious Capitalists with myself, Timothy Henry, and my partner in making the world a better place through business, Raj Sisodia. Good morning, Raj. Good morning. Good morning, Timothy. Good to be with you again. Good to see you. And today, we have a really fascinating discussion about a very topical issue, private equity. I'd like to introduce Brendan Ballou is the federal prosecutor and served as special counsel for private equity in the Justice Department's Antitrust Division. Previously, he worked in private practice and before that in the National Security Division of the Justice Department, where he advised the White House on counterterrorism and other policies. He's graduated from Columbia University and Stanford Law School. And for today, he is the author of a book that came out earlier this year called Plunder, Private Equities Planned to Pillage America. It's been described as the authoritative expose of private equity, what it is, how it kills businesses and jobs, and how that government helps, and what we need to do to stop it. So, Brendan, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So let's begin. Um, where did this book come from? What was the origin of why you decided this book needed to be written? Well... Uh, it really started in quarantine. Um, you know, we were in those sort of dark days. I had a lot of free time on my hands. And, you know, as you mentioned, I work for uh, the Justice Department. I should say at the outset that I'm speaking in a purely personal capacity. And um, when big companies want to merge or buy each other uh, in the United States, they have to file various forms with Justice Department, with the Federal Trade Commission. And I was just looking at these forms and it seemed like every business in the world was getting bought up by institutions that I had never heard of, you know, Blackstone and Carlisle, KKR, Apollo, and so forth, you know, institutions that are probably familiar to most of your listeners, but weren't familiar to me. And that set me down a path of trying to understand what these institutions were, what private equity is, and um, how it's changing the whole country. So let's begin with that. Um... What did you discover? What, what, what the high-level takeaway that you know you're coming to this fresh set of eyes? You look at it. What do you make of it? <laughs> well, you know, I it, it might be helpful to point out that I'm coming at this from the perspective as as a lawyer, um, and so I think private equity has gotten um, very bad press lately. Um, you know, you look at the news articles, and it seems like it's taking over the world and not for the better. And a lot of the criticism of the private equity industry has been on the people in it, um, saying either that these are sort of evil geniuses for the critics or you know, sort of masters of the universe for advocates. Um, and my research uh, suggested that it really wasn't about the people per se. It was about the laws and the regulations that allow the private equity business model. And I'm sure we'll talk a lot more about this, but really it's laws that incentivize sort of short-term thinking, reliance on debt and fees, insulation from liability, 
all these things that create incentives for private equity firms to think short-term and extractively um, rather than long-term and, you know, sort of thinking about broader investments. And because of that, I think you see a lot of bad outcomes in pri for private equity sort of across different industries. So I, I think it's really interesting that you broke it down into a couple different things. One is sort of the short-term short -term financial um, structuring and restructuring that goes on within a legal framework. You you then also talk about some of the other regulations that that help them. And I was particularly struck by one, which was, you know, the way bankruptcy courts. So even if you lose, you still win <laughs> if you're a private equity firm in in many cases, not always. Um, but but when you began this, what were what were the one or two things that that really struck you about the industry itself? Well, when you start talking about plundering, that's a pretty strong word, you know, like where did that word come from when you started looking at this industry? Yeah, uh, plunder was a was a strong adjective, and I think it came to me just looking at some of the specific stories of what private equity firms did to businesses. And I'll give just one example, um, and it's the example that that starts the book is when Carlisle uh, bought up uh, HCR Manor Care, which at the time was the second largest nursing home chain in the United States. Um, it executed a lot of tactics that are pretty familiar to observers of the private equity industry. You know, they required Manor Care to sell its assets and then lease them back in what's called a sale leaseback deal. Uh, it cut staffing, extracted a lot of fees, transaction fees, um, management fees, which are fees that are paid for the privilege of being owned by the private equity firm. So they did all these things. And unsurprisingly, um, health code complaints spike. Um, you know, there's a lot of uh, concerns by residents and at least one resident uh, dies in an allegedly understaffed facility. She has to go to the bathroom by herself. She falls, slips her head on a bathroom fixture, dies of, subdur of subdural hematoma. Um, but what happens is when her family sues Carlisle, the private equity firm, for wrongful death, Carlisle's able to get the case against it dismissed. Um, and what it says is that it's not the technical owner of the nursing home chain. Rather, it's merely an advisor to a series of funds whose who's limited partners through several shell companies ultimately own the nursing home chain. And that's enough to confuse the judge to get the case against it dismissed. And so ultimately, Carlisle's never held responsible for that death at that facility. And I think that sort of spurred the thinking in my mind about this being an instance of plunder where firms like Carlisle are able to capture all the upside of essentially being able to control these businesses. But when things go wrong, they can walk away. Um, and that mismatch, which isn't about the people in private equity, it's about the laws and the regulations, I think is what creates so many of the problems that we see in the industry. So, Brendan, take us back to the, uh, the origins of this. How, how long has private equity been around? Uh, what caused the, uh, you know, the, the the beginning of this industry? And and rough, broadly, what is it for our listeners who are new to the idea of private equity? Yeah, um, it's a good question. And maybe I should have started off by just offering a quick definition. I'm sure a lot of your re uh, listeners have heard of private equity. Um, most of them are probably familiar with the basic idea, but just to set a baseline here. Uh, so the private equity business model is simple. They take a little bit of their own money, some investor money, and a lot of borrowed money to buy up companies. 
And they then try to make financial or operational changes to the companies with the aim of selling them for a profit a few years later. Uh, so it's a very simple business model. But for reasons that we've been discussing, and I'm sure we'll discuss, it often leads to very bad consequences. Bad consequences uh, for the people that work at these co companies, bad consequences uh, for the people, for the customers or clients that use them. Um, now, how did private equity actually get started? There's always been a history of people using de debt to buy up businesses. But I think in the United States, a few changes really supercharged that. One was the change to the capital gains rate. You know, Historically, ordinary income and income from investments were essentially taxed at the same rate. That starts to change in the 1970s and becomes much more profitable to be in the finance industry. At the same time, uh, the federal government reinterprets something called ERISA, which is the statute that governs um, retirement and pension plans in the United States, to say that pension funds can start investing in riskier alternative assets, including the nascent leverage buyout or private equity industry. And so suddenly you have this situation where it's becoming more profitable to be in finance and pension funds are now able to invest in more speculative investments. And suddenly pension funds are funding um, sort of the leverage buyout boom. There's a sort of a parallel movement that's going on with junk bonds in the 1980s. You couple that with sustained periods of low interest rates, and suddenly there's a lot of money going around to finance these sorts of deals. Um, so it goes back to that initial point, which is it's really about the laws and the way that we've interpreted them that have enabled the private equity industry. And um, uh, the you know the idea of companies getting bought and sold in this fashion of the roll-ups that you see often in, uh, in private equity. Um, you know, we talk in conscious capitalism about companies kind of having a soul. Right? Each company is not just a financial entity to be traded like a commodity, but there's something deeper there. And I, I feel like in this kind of an environment, that that gets lost. The company kind of loses its soul and it just becomes, you know, like the deck of cards. You just, you know, trade them around. So I don't know if you thought about that dimension, but I do think about that when I think about what is what is a company and what's the soul of a company and what is its own, you know, its own sort of um, our destiny, right? Other than just being chopped up and bought. And what, with what energy are people starting companies? Increasingly, people start companies on day one with an exit strategy, even the founders. Yeah. It. It's strengthening. No, I think that's such a good um, sort of metaphor about the idea of uh, what is the soul of a company. And you talk to people that are at businesses for a generation or their entire careers, and they really speak about their business in that way, that it's not just about making a living or making a profit. It's about serving your customers, your clients, building a team, building an institution, um, thinking about sort of the legacy that you're trying to leave behind. And I think it's almost inherent in the business model of private equity to sort of disregard that. When you have a three or five or seven year investment horizon, you can't think long term about the business. You can't think about investing in R&D, in infrastructure, investing in the future of your employees or the future of your own customers. You have to think in a very myopic sort of short term perspective. Um, so I don't know if that makes the companies they buy sort of soulless, but it certainly makes it hard to turn them into institutions, into, into the sorts of businesses 
that people love. Um, and that's just inherent in the private equity business model. And how much of that is also fueled? And let's take the pension funds because um, they've also got a fairly, in theory, they should have a long-term perspective. They're trying to fund liabilities that they have that are over lifetimes. And they've also got a lot of incentives for short-term performance gains. They've got benchmarks that they've got to hit. They've got fiduciary responsibility that sometimes is measured in quarterly <laughs> reports. And, um, and and so share a little bit of perspective of, of you know, you, you mentioned pension funds at the beginning as being one of the sources of capital. And to what extent are they also driving some of this short-term perspective? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um for exactly the reasons that you're talking about, which is often these private equity firms or these pension funds, um, you know, have just as short-term incentives or requirements as the private equity firms. So they're not necessarily thinking long-term. You know, the funny thing is historically, private equity was a really good investment for pension funds. But the more that we learn, the more the industry matures, the more research that gets out there, it seems like it's becoming a less and less profitable industry, particularly for pension fund investors, to such an extent that there's good research out there. And I've talked to a number of academics saying that, look, when you include the fees, pension, private equity actually isn't a better investment than just investing in an index fund. So, you know, these pension funds might not actually be getting a good deal uh, by investing in private equity. At the same time, you know, private equity uh, often undermines the very basis for these pension funds. They're really interesting anecdotes. Uh, for instance, of pension funds, which are often paid for by, you know, union jobs, teachers, firefighters, and so forth, investing in private equity firms that then buy up companies that engage in union busting activities. So it undermines the very future of these pension funds. That's not always the case, but it sometimes happens. Yeah, there's something really perverse about that, isn't there? That uh, um, often the way that operational efficiencies are achieved is by across the board cuts. Now, if I was in private equity, I would argue, well, actually, what we're doing is we're putting in often new management that's becoming a lot of operational discipline. Yes, we've got some financial engineering we've done, but we've increasingly, particularly over the last 10 years, put a lot of effort into operational efficiency and making the supply chains work better, uh, bringing in new technology. Um, and things like that, and manufacturing, improving the quality and the consistency of the manufacturing process. Um, how do you argue with that? With that part of it, which says, you know, there is a real focus on operational effectiveness, and and there is that element that they bring to the table. Yep, that is the key argument uh, by the private equity industry, uh, and I think in some instances there's merit to it. But two things: one is. Oftentimes, private equity firms install in management folks that actually don't really know about the business. Um, you know, that have they're sort of repeat customers for the private equity firm that execute on a specific playbook. Often, that has disastrous results. The New York Times did really great reporting about how a private equity installed uh, executive at Payless Shoe Source, who didn't have any background in retail, much less shoes, uh, he was actually an investment banker. Uh, was nevertheless coming up with all sorts of shoe ideas, like why don't we close down the factory in China that does quality control 
And then immediately you see shoes coming out that are disfigured or come in the wrong sizes and undercut any savings that they had. So on the one hand, sometimes you have um, executives that are installed who really just aren't right for the industry. The other problem is a little bit more systemic, which is even if you install the right people, you have this mismatch between uh, control and responsibility. Uh, so for instance, uh, when three private equity firms took over Toys R Us and installed their preferred executive who came from Domino's uh, to run the company, ultimately they pushed the company into bankruptcy, there are huge layoffs and so forth, uh, uh, the entire company liquidates. At the same time, uh, the private equity firms were able to extract all, all the fees that they needed to recoup their initial investment from Toys R Us. And then after bankruptcy, they don't have that, those assets don't get clawed back to pay the debtors, the employees, and so forth. So you have the situation where the private equity firm gets to have control over how to run the business, gets to extract money, but when the business fails, uh, they're not held responsible. Yeah, it does feel like a stacked game. You know, I think in my experience, which is limited, but I was on the board of a company that had gone public, but before that, they had taken in private equity uh, money. And as a new board member, and I, and I first saw the documents, and I said, wow, all the entire proceeds of the IPO, every penny, are going to, uh, to the private equity firm to pay a preferred dividend or a guaranteed dividend or something that was in there. Right, so literally, there was not a dollar for investing in the growth of the of the business, and of course, they had taken on a huge amount of debt uh, along the way, which they did not have before the private equity firm came in. And so, it really, this was a company that was, had been doing pretty well as a private company, but then it went public and had all of these constraints on it. And the private equity firm had already made a handsome return on their investment. And now they own over 50% of this public company, you know, which has subsequently declined dramatically. Uh, and they pushed out the original owners and founders of the company, et cetera. So it was kind of a sad story, an ongoing story still. I'm out of that board. But, uh, but yeah, it kind of illustrated to me even a private equity firm that says we are a conscious private equity. Well, that's kind of their angle. We're, we're looking at what they invest in these kinds of businesses. Uh, but in fact, they're not making those businesses more successful. They are actually taking away what made those businesses very successful ultimately. And so not a question there, but just want to share an experience that I have that kind of soured me uh, on the private equity thing. And as, as I said, you know, the, the returns that they provide to the pension funds and others is one thing, uh, but, but the amount of self-enrichment that happens for the principles in the private equity I think that that is what I've been struck by. Yeah, no, that's a that's a really interesting story. And I mean, to go back just a moment, I mean, the exact same thing happened with Toys R Us, which is uh, Toys R Us was, you know, the failure of the company is often attributed to Amazon. Uh, but it was, I believe, a profitable company right up until the moment it filed for bankruptcy. Um, the challenge that you had was it was bought by the private equity firms with so much leverage uh, that they were spending so much just servicing the debt that they couldn't make the necessary investments to transition to online selling. Um, so you have the situation where private equity firms, 
because of the business model of reliance on debt to make the acquisition, and just to spell this out for your listeners, many of whom may already know this, when a private equity firm buys up a company with debt, sort of the magic trick of the business model is it's the company, not the private equity firm that's responsible for paying the debt. Uh, you have these situations where these good companies are loaded up with so much debt that they have to service um, that they really can invest in their own future. And you see that sort of spelled out, not just in anecdotes, but in statistics. Um, there's a really interesting study showing that private equity owned portfolio companies are 10 times as likely to go bankrupt as similarly situated companies that aren't owned by private equity. And I think in large part, it's because of that debt servicing that you mentioned. So now that interest rates have gone up so much, you know, that part of the strategy starts to look uh, quite iffy, right? Because yeah, even money was cheap, it might have made more sense. But now what's going to happen and some of that debt is going to get re, you know, repriced or refinanced, right? And those interest rates can be variable at that times. And so that's what, how, how is that going to impact this whole uh, industry? You, know, any you know, it's it's so interesting that um, you can see sort of rumblings of this in the news. You know, interest rates have gone up dramatically and you see a lot of funds, they're not making big noises about it. Because uh, they don't need to, you know, cash out yet uh, to their investors, but it seems like they're really struggling. Uh, you know, in some cases, even preventing their invest their limited partners from withdrawing investments, closing down their funds for periods of time. So, I think it's definitely causing problems for the private equity business model. Um, the interesting thing is, in a lot of ways, private equity firms are moving beyond private equity. Um, it, after the Great Recession, all the big investment firms converted into or uh, uh, converted into what are called bank holding companies which are regulated by the Federal Reserve have much higher capital requirements you know sort of much much more onerous reporting re requirements um and so a lot of the financial innovation moved over to nascent private equity firms and so they've expanded to do not just these leverage buyouts but are also moving into I think you kind of alluded to this into the private credit market, where rather than making equity investments, they're making loans to companies. So that's a business that really works when you've got um, uh, high interest rates. So I think it's interesting to see how private equity firms are innovating uh, in this new environment. And the challenge that we've got is they are dramatically less regulated than investment banks are. So they're able to do a lot of this work with investment banks, but without sort of similar oversight. Well, that sort of leads to, I think, one of the main theses of your book, which is none of this was possible without a legal framework in the U.S. that encourages and allows that. And this is a great example. There's a burgeoning market in this private credit that's being used to refinance some of these companies that you know, more competitive rates, so to speak. But there's no regulation. It's It's not like banks. When banks go to make loans, they've got but the private credit is a different a different beast. And and that's just one example. So, you know, um, tell us a little bit about the, the big picture framing of the role of government in enabling and empowering this. Yeah, I think private equity firms have been almost unparalleled in their success in sort of identifying and shaping laws in their favor. Uh, I believe that they've spent something like $900 million on federal uh, candidates and elected officials over the past 30 years, they have a very deep bench of former secretaries of treasury, defense, uh, state, 
former chair of people of the FCC and SCC, uh, former senators and Congress people, a really, really long list of folks that are willing to advocate on their behalf. Um, and you can see the results in legislation, you know, whether it's the continuation of the carried interest loophole or, mm-hmm. um, you know, successfully reforming uh, legislation on surprise medical billing and so forth. Just really astounding success. Um, to get a little bit more specific uh, on your question about um, sort of ro- regulations role in private equity, um, you know, it really is interesting how regulation around investment banks pushed a lot of financial innovation, for better or worse, over to the private mm-hmm. equity firms. Um, mm-hmm. There's this quote from this analyst that I can't get out of my head where he says something to the effect of, um, Blackstone reminds me of Goldman Sachs 10 years ago. You know, wherever something interesting is happening, that's where they are. And, mm. you know, you can see that happening in the brain drain from the investment banks to the private equity firms. Uh, it's something like, I believe, a fifth of uh, employees at Blackstone and I believe KKR uh, came from the top investment banks, whereas just 2% of folks at the top investment banks came from these top private equity firms. And so what that means is all the folks are going to private equity because that's where the innovation and that's where the money is. And that is really the result, um, not of, you know, great corporate strategy or branding or having fancier offices or anything like that. It's because of regulation. And as you say that, I mean, Raj and I are aware of a couple of different emerging private equity firms, and we'll shout out a couple of them to Satori Capital, Rally Day Partners, uh, our friend Foresight Partners, um, where they're taking what they call, in essence, a hybrid equity approach. They're trying not to be the traditional private equity firm. They're taking the perspective that you can create value by changing the culture, by aligning with the purpose of the organization by developing leaders in the organization that will lead in a certain way. And that's not really in the traditional private equity playbook because most of the private equity people, as you rightly point out, are former private or former investment bankers. And, you know, they don't really have a lot of operational experience. And what's fascinating about some of these new entities that we're starting to see emerge is that they tend to be by founders who founded businesses and run businesses, and they're going into private equity with the perspective of, I wish we had this when we were here um, kind of thing. Now, within the conscious capitalism movement, we we see a few of those, but I'm, I'm wondering that as, is there a natural market mechanism at all at play here, or is this just wishful thinking on our part? that starts to say, hey, you've done the financial engineering, that was generation one, generation two was making these operational changes. Is there a potential for a generation three that starts to say, you know, the the culture, the leadership, the alignment with purpose, the integration of stakeholders, these are how you create really long-term value and profitability in a firm, but you need to have a longer time frame. Is What do you think about that? I think, I mean, I certainly think that's encouraging. And I think that there are a lot of people in the finance industry that are trying to do the right thing and think long term. I, I've always said my goal, you know, I don't think that we need to um, eliminate private equity as a business model. We just need to make it, in a sense, less interesting and more responsible. Um, the challenge that we've got is 
you know, and maybe I'm just showing my biases based on my profession is that, you know, people with the right attitude and the right values alone can't solve this problem. Um, what we really need is a change to the regulations around this because the regulations shape incentives, you know, just as you can have responsible, there were responsible people, you know, issuing good mortgages in 2004, um, you know, that alone wasn't enough to stop the housing crisis. You know, ultimately, yeah, you need yeah. to change uh, change the incentives. Well, on that note, I mean, the final two chapters of your book, particularly the last chapter, you do lay out an agenda for reform, and it falls into three different buckets. Um, maybe talk a little bit about those three buckets and and what you think are some of the critical things that people ought to be paying attention to. Of course, and hopefully, I'm I'm. Uh, recalling the right buckets here. It's been a little while since I wrote the book, but I've always said that there are three basic problems with the private equity business model, and I, I alluded to them earlier. Uh, Short-term thinking, so you know, owning the company just for a few years. Reliance on debt and fees, so loading the company up with a lot of debt to buy it and then extracting a lot of fees. And then insulation from liability, where private equity firms can control a business, but walk away when things go bad without any consequences. And if you can change those three things, you know, sort of turn the knobs down on each one of them, I think private equity can be a responsible and positive force for society in that there's always going to be a role for finance. There's always going to be a role for private ownership that needs to exist. But the way that we've got it right now is just incentivizing very destructive tactics. So those are the high-level changes that need to happen. Um, obviously, in the United States, people always turn to Congress for solutions here, um, and there is a lot that Congress could do to act. Um, yeah. But I think that there's a lot of different levers of power, um, mm. whether you're talking about the SEC and Treasury, Federal Reserve, um, for specific industries where private equity is active, um, the Department of Health and Human Services and FCC can be really useful. And one area where I'm particularly excited is uh, state and local action. Uh, you know, states can ban some of these more extractive tactics for businesses that are headquartered or um, incorporated in their jurisdictions, saying, okay, if this business is, you know, based in our state uh, and you execute an extractive sale leaseback that results in a bankruptcy, okay, we're going to make sure that employees and consumers are adequately compensated. Um, you know, and you can you can go through any number of examples like that, but all of which is to say that there's a lot that needs to be done, and there are a lot of different institutions that can do it. Well, doesn't that raise a really interesting conundrum, which is um, because I, I you know I read that last chapter with a lot of interest, and, and you did lay out a very systematic approach. But to your point, it's a pretty you know a comprehensive set of reforms touches on multiple areas of governance and government all the way from pension funds and what you refer to here as pension washing sometimes in some of these issues to um you know labor laws to should we have recapitalization of dividends you know um and that implies a comprehensive approach but Who's going to push for comprehensive approach when there's 900 million sitting on the other side of it saying, hey, uh, you know, look over here. Don't pay attention to this. Um, where's that source of, of political pressure 
to make those reforms happen? And that is a great question. And a couple of things. One, I've been really heartened, um, you know, since even before the book came out, uh, there's really, I think, has been a changing public perception and understanding of private equity. Um, I wish I could take credit for that. I think it's a much larger movement um, where I think people are understanding the problems that the private equity business model poses. And that's broadly filtering um, across the public, which I'm very encouraged about. I'll also say that I think ordinary people um, can really punch above their weight in public policy debate and advocacy. I, I say this as a government employee, a current employee and a previous a prior employee. Um, most people in government are trying to do the right thing and serve uh, taxpayers and citizens and residents well. But the challenge that we've got is there's an extremely well-funded industry that's working hard to change regulations and laws in their favor, as is their right to do. And there's no countervailing conversations saying, okay, if you interpret... I mentioned the ERISA statute, ERISA in this one technical way, it's actually going to hurt retirees. Or if you interpret um, health and human services regulations in a certain way, it's going to hurt nursing home residents. Um, so we need to figure out ways to empower um, ordinary folks to really advocate in some of these areas where they aren't really used to doing that. You know, people are used to sort of sending an email to their congressperson. They're a lot less used to filing a letter with the Securities and Exchange Commission. Um, the good thing that I see here, and I don't want to be overly optimistic here, is that I've seen a lot of organizations that are doing good work generally, um, private equity stakeholder project, uh, open markets Institute, American economic liberties project. Um, but real success, uh, for people that are working on specific issues, um, the organization worth rises, for instance, has been astoundingly successful in pushing back against private equity ownership of prison phone companies and the extremely high rates that they charge to inmates and to families, um, passing local, state, and even federal legislation. That's just one organization. I mean, they've been joined by many others, but it's an area where there was real success. Similar movements have been happening around nursing home staffing criteria, which is another industry where private equity is particularly active. So I think when people choose specific issues um, it's not just that things can happen, it's that things are happening and have happened. Well, you know, Brendan, it's heartening to me to see somebody like you engaged in this. I mean, you've got about as elite an education as you can get. And I imagine the opportunities for you in the world are, are, are many, but you've chosen public service. And talk to us a little bit about your, your journey and what drew you to this kind of work and to work in the public sector rather than in the in the private sector, where presumably you would be making a lot more money. <laughs> uh, that's kind of you to say. Um, I, I think ultimately it goes back to my mom, to whom the book is dedicated, who was a community organizer uh, in my home state of Minnesota and was fighting to make sure that people's heat couldn't get turned off in the winter and so forth. Um, and I think she was a real inspiration in terms of the values that uh, informed the book. You know, I've I've worked for companies before. It, it I I never felt a particular. It's not that I'm against working for a big business, um, but I it didn't move me particularly, and I'm profoundly grateful for the opportunity to to work in government. I think the one thing that really excites me is uh, I've had a chance to talk to a lot of young folks um, in colleges and law schools about issues like this, 
And they are so passionate about this. And and more than just sort of the ordinary, you know, passions of being a young student, um, they're thinking about how to form their careers to work on these things, uh, which is really exciting. So I'm trying to convince them all, you know, come work in the government, state or federal. Um, there's a lot to be done there. Um, there's obviously al also ways to do this in private business as well. But I'm really encouraged by the um, seriousness with which so many young people are thinking about these issues and thinking about how to shape their lives to work on them. I'm really excited about that. And, you know, we had recently uh, Pete Stavros from KKR, our podcast, and he was talking about their initiative to bring ownership, employee ownership, uh, into all of their portfolio companies. I think around 40 of them. And also setting up a parallel on profit called Ownership Works, which is trying to push the idea that more companies should think about a sizable chunk of uh, of their equities being owned by by employees, and all of the benefits that flow from that, of course, for the employees, uh, but also ultimately for the business as well. So, and and Timothy talked about a couple of other examples of what we would call more enlightened ways to do this, to be in private equity and to be a net positive impact on society as opposed to an extractive, extractive one. So. I think in parallel to the, the changes that you talked about, which I agree, regulatory things are also required uh, to combat what we call capitalism, which is crony capitalism, right? where you get all these laws passed, which are not good for society. There's, every law should be, ultimately. Uh, but do you see encouraging signs of that? Uh, among the private equity firms that you looked at, are there some that are, are operating at this more conscious level, enlightened way? Yeah, you know, I, I did see interesting examples of private equity firms that really saw it as their job to partner with labor rather than to take an oppositional approach. There was a a really heartening story about one firm that um, really revived a whole plant, um, timber plant in Arkansas uh, that had been shut down. They were able to get it back up and running again. I think they didn't do any debt financing uh, to acquire the uh, acquire the plant got it up and running, kept a long-term equity stake in the business, kept some board membership state seats. So they were thinking for the long-term. And I, as far as I know, the plant still employs over 100 people, which is really great. Um, you know, there has been discussion about employee ownership in these private equity deals. I know that KKR has been um, advocating for this model, which I think is is very encouraging. And obviously, the more that you can get employees thinking about um, how can how can we align the incentives of the business with the incentives of the employees and both thinking long term is really great. I hate to be a little bit of a pessimist here, but um, you know, at the risk of repetition, I think the challenge that we have is ultimately the private equity industry as a whole will be governed by the incentives that that uh, surround it. And so you might have folks that are pushing for, uh, meaningful change, important change. Um, but until you change the incentives of the business into a more pro-social way, um, I think that those will be more the exception rather than the rule. Well, it's interesting, uh, Brendan, our last guest was an expert on ESG and the way that movement has been evolving and uh, people putting money into ESG funds thinking that that's accomplishing the goal. But it really isn't. And ultimately, the need for regulatory change I think it's a common theme here. You know, in conscious capitalism, we work at the company level generally. We're trying to get companies to adopt this more uh, enlightened way, conscious way. 
that looks at the whole system and everybody flourishes within the system. With the, I'm talking about the, co- the company's system, not the overall economy. Uh, so we operate at that level, but increasingly we're running into this reality that even if hundreds of companies become conscious, that doesn't mean that we're going to accomplish the overall goals. So we do need on the other the push and the pull on the other side, right, as well, then to, we need meaningful regulatory reform to encourage, not first of all, to discourage the harmful way of doing things. And right now we have subsidies and incentives in place to actually do harm in many ways. To remove that and then start putting positive incentives on the other side, hopefully temporarily. No, we shouldn't have to incentivize people in the long run. But uh, but I, I do see that as a common theme that is emerging. You know, two things. One, I, I completely agree. I think maybe it's a little analogous to, um, you know, the, the climate change movement, which is you need both people to be focusing on recycling and reducing their own consumption, but you also need broader regulatory reform so that power plants aren't emitting too much, you know, CO2 and so forth. It's a sort of both and rather than an either or. Um, so I, I think that that... Um, you know, it's 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 not necessarily uh, uh, one or the other. Um, in terms of sort of incentives here, I have to say I am really encouraged. I, I have talked to a lot of private equity folks that um, really recognize problems within the industry and are, you know, sort of, they might not say it on the record, but they will say it off the record that it's like, yeah, we've got some problems in the business model. And what I always think is, Ultimately, it kind of comes down to us lawyers, uh, which is we have this sort of astounding ability to invent a bad business model about every 20 years. You know, right now, I would argue it's the private equity business model. You know, 20 years ago is subprime lenders. 40 years ago is savings and loans. 60 years ago is conglomerates. 100 years ago, uh, it was trust. You know, it's it's not that we need to fundamentally change the nature of Human, you know, human incentives or capitalism itself or anything like that. We just need to fix bad business models, and if we can do that, um, you know, we can we can turn people's basic ambitions into something that's productive rather than um, antisocial. I'm fascinated by what has been the reaction of the private equity industry to the book, and. What, if anything, in that surprised you? Because I guess there's some things you would have expected that. But what surprised you? <laughs> yeah, I, I think, you know, to go back to what I was mentioned earlier, I think what surprises me is I've talked to a handful of private equity folks um, that in large part agreed, uh, which sort of surprised me. I went to a conference uh, a month. I spoke at a conference maybe a month or two ago uh, that was largely a pro-private equity crowd. And I got some very pointed questions during my presentation, which was kind of great. You know, it's, it's fun to have sort of a back and forth. But after the presentation, one of the folks that was sort of most pointed came up to me and said, you know, you're wrong about A and B, but you're really right about C and D here. Um, and so I think that there's a recognition, even within the industry, um, that some of these things just really aren't right for society at large. And, you know, they're going to play within the bounds that they've got right now, but maybe they, even they agree that the bounds should be a little different. Systemic risk. When you look at this industry and you look at what it's doing, not only in the U.S., but across the world. What do you see as some of the big systemic risks here? Two things I think that concern me the most. One is the expansion into the insurance industry, which is, you know, Mm -hmm. historically private equity firms have gotten their money from pension funds, endowments, sovereign wealth funds, and so forth. Um, 
I think they are largely tapping out those resources and now buying up insurance companies, um, you know, life insurance companies where you give them a premium every month and they can use that to invest in their in their projects. The challenge that I've seen is, as has been publicly reported in the trade presses, um, these firms have been moving the assets or the plans to offshore affiliates in Bermuda that have lower capital requirements. And um, that gives them more money to play with, but it also means that they've got less of a cushion if things go wrong. The reason that this concerns me the most is if one of these plans goes insolvent, um, it's not necessarily the case that the private equity firm owner is going to have to pay out. Rather, what are called state guarantee corporations, which are essentially insurers for insurers paid for by other insurance companies in a given state, will likely have to pay out or potentially have to pay out on these plans. So you've got the situation where private equity firms will probably get all the benefit of getting to use this money if things go well, but if things go sideways, they may get to walk away from it. Um, so I think that's concerning. And the other thing that uh, I'm a little worried about is, you know, we were mentioning earlier the private credit market. Um, almost by definition, the private credit market is less transparent than the public markets. It's now vastly larger than the public markets, which in the United States have sort of gotten smaller and smaller each year. Um, there's been allegations or concerns that um, in the private credit market, People have been relying on less than reputable um, ratings agencies to get AAA ratings for, you know, loans that they then syndicate off to folks that might not be aware of that fact. Um, it's a situation that can, you know, when you've got a lot of money flowing around and not a lot of transparency, those are the sorts of situations that create bubbles. And the private equity industry is extremely active there. So I think those are two areas where I'm um, uh, concerned. So when the students ask you questions, I just want to go back to that point. What are some of the things, the questions that you've found to be most interesting that the students have asked? That's a great question. I, I'll, I'll give you a critical question uh, that I yeah. that I really enjoyed. Um, one student said, well, you know, in your book, you say ah, these guys are really great um, at identifying loopholes and, you know, lobbying and shaping regulations in their favor. But on the other hand, they're incompetent uh, at managing businesses and so forth. And he says, so so, which is it? Are they smart or are they dumb? Uh, which I thought was a great, great critique. And I think that um, it points out, you know, something that I've tried to sort of explain is that I think private equity executives often are very smart, um, but they're not necessarily smart in the thing that they advertise themselves as doing. You know, they're very good at the financial and legal engineering of these businesses, often much less good in the operational uh, aspects of the businesses. And that's just the nature of their background. Their backgrounds are in finance and to a lesser extent law, not in marketing, sales, engineering, logistics, and so forth. So I really like that question because it, it suggested that the students were engaging deeply enough to you know, not just blandly agree, but also think, oh, this blue guy didn't didn't understand this issue or that issue. Well, you know, they might have analytical intelligence and financial intelligence, but they don't have emotional intelligence. They don't have necessarily, right? So the people side of the business, uh, they might be good operationally, some of them, but I think when we talk about conscious businesses, the magic there is really the people side. Absolutely. Right? To uh, give people a sense of purpose and meaning and respect and dignity and all the rest of it, which... Uh, which doesn't come naturally when people are coming with, with the kinds of backgrounds that you typically have. It. 
very smart people, very analytical. Everything is seen through a lens of numbers. So I talk about it's all about the wallet and it's all about the bottom line. We do leave out the human in between, right? Everything that uh, that really makes life meaningful. Uh, the other thing that I, I see as a reason why this has grown to the extent that it has, it's kind of uh, hard to resist for the owner of a company when somebody comes and says, you know, you can cash out a whole bunch of money today. You're a high valuation to this thing and you can get a huge payday today, right? And, you know, but then the consequences for everybody else are felt. The owners and some of the senior executives get an immediate uh, liquidity event, as they call it, right? Uh, but then the consequences for the business over time, it's hard for them to see how it's going to unfold. And that's what I've seen play out. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it highlights one of the problems that we've, you know, if we look back over our movement over the last 15 years, and I want to tie two points together and get your response, Brendan. One is, you know, the alignment of purpose-driven businesses with the right kind of capital structure and the right source of capital. You know, Raj alluded to it earlier, where one of our favorite conscious capitalist companies got out of alignment in that, and the result was the money won. Um and so that's one point. How do we sort of get this better alignment? You know, where's the hope for us in this space as conscious capitalists? Hmm. That's a great question. And truthfully, I don't I don't know the answer. I think you guys are probably better positioned to answer it than I am. Um, I think it goes back to, you know, something that Raj was talking about earlier, the idea of a business having a soul, you know, ideally you have somebody on the financial side that recognizes that and has a soul themselves and wants your business, you know, not just to have a successful exit, um, but to last forever. I can't remember um, whether it was Hewlett or Packard who was saying, or, you know, the folks over there who said, you know, we never thought that an exit strategy was anything that we would ever want to do. We were doing what we wanted to do. Um, so if you can get not just executives that understand that perspective, but folks on the, on the financial side as well, um, it seems like you're much more likely to have success. Yeah. Uh, and I want to tie that Raj with a question to you in a way, you know, you talk a lot about healing organizations and creating healing organizations and leaders needing to heal. When you look at what you're trying to push in that space and the discussion we're having today with Brendan about the countervailing forces in the financial world, where do you come out on that, Raj? I mean, how are you feeling? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, if you look at uh, Barry Waymiller and then the offshoot, which is Foresight Capital. Uh, so Brendan, Barry Waymiller is a company based in St. Louis, manufacturing company, um, struggling packaging business uh, 50 years ago, then Bob Chapman turned it around you know, through normal operational things. But then over time, discovered the power of culture and people and putting people at the center and changing their approach to leadership and so forth. And, and ultimately, not only turned that business around, started buying other distressed manufacturing businesses, starting in the industrial Midwest, Wisconsin, Ohio, Pennsylvania, et cetera, and kept applying that formula, right? Uh, put people at the center, make some operational improvements with lean manufacturing, et cetera, change the approach to leadership, and turn these struggling, in some cases, dying businesses around. Never sold a single one. That's a big difference, right? So this is about once you buy, that part of the journey. And now, as last count, acquired 126 companies that are part of the Barry Wambula family now. Uh, and now his son started this parallel thing called Foresight Capital, which is outside of the uh, 
industry parameters that Barry Weimler is in, which is packaging and a few other things. Now, they're applying that same approach uh, into other areas and acquiring these companies that were struggling. You know, without these small manufacturing companies can't make it in the U.S. Well, they're showing them how to make it. They're turning them around. And again, it's buy and hold. And it's adding a lot of value to those businesses, not just financial, uh, but other kinds of value. And, you know, performing at a high level. So I think when you have that kind of an approach, you know, one of the companies that was acquired, I visited uh, in Wisconsin, and they said when we were struggling, there were a bunch of buyers out there looking at our company. But they were circling us like vultures. I say, what can we pick out? There's land, there's buildings, there's this and that. And the people are expendable. Most of them will go anyway. Um, you know, Bob Chapman, they said, was circling us almost like a guardian angel. He's saying, can I save this company? Can I give these people a future? 900 people work for this company in a town of 1,400. Okay, this town disappears. This company disappears. And so his motivation was, can I save this company? Can I save this town? Can I give these people a future? And with that energy, he came and bought that company. He brought back manufacturing from Brazil and it very replicated that countless times. And so when I talked to him some years ago and I asked him what he was doing, he said, oh, I'm looking at another dozen acquisitions this year. <laughs> I'm off to Europe tomorrow for 10 days and looking at six companies over there. I said, Bob, you've got 118 companies. At that time. You know, and why do you need all the aggravation? You've got 26 children and grandchildren. Shouldn't you be just enjoying your life? You've got all the money you need. Everything is, is beautiful. He said, Raj, I don't know how much time I have left. In all my deathbed, I would not be proud of the money that we made or the machines we built. I will be proud of the lives we touched. And before I die, I will touch as many lives as I can. And I said, Bob, you're not just growing a business. You're spreading a healing ministry. And you've got a business model that elevates everybody's life, a way of meeting and caring for those people. And now you want to bring that to as many people as possible. So when... When Bob Chapman comes to town, people have a sense of hope. When some of the traditional private equity, you know, KKR, not KKR, but uh, CG Capital out of Brazil, you know, when they come looking and looking to acquire, you know, life is going to get rid. Many people will lose their job. Everybody else is going to be put on this incredibly stressful uh, set of cost-cutting targets and revenue-growing targets and so forth. So that's, uh, I think, the big difference, you know. So we're we're trying to inculcate I mean, and encourage more business leaders to think like that because, you know, Barry Weimler has been growing at about 15, 16% a year, compounded for 20 years now. Highly profitable, outperforming even Berkshire Hathaway, you know, in terms of uh, the, uh, the value of their, of their shares. And so it does work, right? But uh, it takes a certain kind of leader with a certain mindset to make that work. Well, Brendan, thank you so much for shining the light on on this corner of the universe and offering us some solutions and paths forward. Uh, hopefully we will see these changes over the next few years and see if we can make money a force for good in the next version of the private equity industry. Thank you for your time and attention today. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you to our listeners and thank you to Tech Sounds for producing today and for Tech de Monterey for your sponsorship of our program. If you enjoyed our, our talk today, then please go over to Apple Podcasts and give us a rating, send us some news or reviews on there. And on whatever channel you're listening to, please feel free to hit the subscription buttons so you can hear us more often. Thanks all. 